We're going to dig into this, uh, this passage that we looked at last week a little bit more um, and take it a bit further. So this is the passage we're, we're kind of our, I guess our strap line is rooted in, our statement is rooted in, um, in Matthew, this is Matthew's version of it. In Matthew 22, verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Last week, as I continued to reflect on the sabbatical and the periods that I kind of went to this passage and talked a little bit about what loving God, loving people looked like and reflected on Justin's reflections from the October the 15th Sunday and his reflection on his unsung hero, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, when Justin said Joseph's life and his actions were shaped completely by his love for Jesus. And what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we love Jesus. We love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We love our neighbour as ourselves. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And we reflected on how our disciple comes out of that, how, that, how all that we are comes, should come out of that loving relationship we have with our God who, as I said two weeks ago, spreads the table and invites us to come and sit and dine and, and, and be intimate with him. That's the invitation. And in that context, I share some thoughts around how we spend our time thinking around the Sabbath, and you know, I don't have the answers, as I said. Um, thinking how we use our money, giving and tithing, what that looks like for us to give to God the first 10%, the first p- proportion of our money that we give to him, what is, uh, his, is rightfully his. And in a way, those two aspects come under the title of what it means to love God. How do we love God? How do we prioritize God in love in those ways? And today I want to dig into the second part of that, I guess, a little bit, in looking at how that affects our relationships with others. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, this morning. Last Sunday, in our kind of what's God been teaching us stuff, Ken shared that he was learning that people were more open to talking about things of God than he perhaps had given credit to them for. Um, And actually, sometimes we... We assume that they're not interested, and so we don't talk. But actually, he'd had some experiences where he had had some open conversations. And I want to think about this for a moment, what it is for us to be witnesses for Jesus. Now, for a lot of us, when, I, when you read that there, you come out in a cold sweat. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, I've got to talk to someone about Jesus. I've got to tell someone to go to church. And actually, let's be honest... For a lot of us, it's something that we find really hard to do. It perhaps doesn't always come up naturally in conversation. It feels like sometimes we have to kind of orchestrate it to make it happen. Some of us don't want to open up that conversation because we perhaps feel inadequate in terms of things that they might ask us and we won't have the answers to say, so we don't want to do it. And so we kind of make up these a bit like what Kim was saying last week, we make up this thing that actually they won't be interested. So because they're not interested, I won't even bother talking to them about it because they're not going to be interested. Actually, they are, <laughs> most of the time, if it's done in the right way. Very natural way, just conversational stuff. Jesus said to his disciples as he prepared to leave them, 
This is the passage in Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isn't it telling that some of these people, some of these disciples had been with Jesus for 40 days, they'd seen him come back to life, they'd seen the empty tomb, they'd seen him on the cross, they'd spent 40 days with him, they'd heard all the teaching, they'd seen him do miracles, they'd seen him walk into a room and then walk out of a you know, it's like they'd spent 40 days with him and still, still they doubted. Wow. People that say, oh, if only I could be with Jesus today. Physically? Yeah, okay, it didn't work... 2,000 years ago, why would it work today? It's an excuse. It's just a put, a put, put away to try and get, ignore the conversation, ignore the issues. People that were with him post-resurrection still doubted. And that may be reassuring to some of us that we're in good company. <laughs> with disciples who lived 2,000 years ago that walked with Jesus, that sometimes, some days, some moments, uh, we have those questions of what if... I remember Jeff Lucas talking about this one day and he was walking on to the platform to preach, to speak at a Spring Harvest event in front of thousands of people. And as he walked across the platform, he got towards the microphone. He had this moment of like, what if I've got this wrong? <laughs> is, is this true? A moment of doubt as he kind of walked to address 2,000 people or however many thousands were there. You know, none of us are immune from doubt. None of us are immune from those moments where, have I got it right? Am I, am I reading this right? And the key is what we do with that, because what do those early disciples do? They, they kept meeting together. They kept every day meeting together. They were in the same space. And when we have those moments of doubt, let's not give up meeting together. Let's stay with it. Let's hang in there. Not because you've got all the answers, not because we've got all the answers, but there's something to, about being in the same space together. Go and make disciples of all nations. One of the books that I read um, was by a guy called Ed Silvoso, um, called Ecclesia. Um, I read one of Ed's books uh, entitled The Nuncher Parish when I was at Bible College, and it absolutely changed how I saw ministry. Um, and so when I was talking to someone only this last year about that book, he said, this book's even better. So I had to get it, I had to read it. Um, so some of the thought, thinking around that comes out of, of that book, in, the, in that text, in that book, um, Ed talks about an, an organization that he's founded and working with called Transform Our World. And if you want to know a bit more, you can go to their website. But they're, 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 they're kind of, of striped on their statement. If you go to their website, the, the first sort of image has this, is this. And on it, it says this. Without God, we can't. But without God, or without us, he won't. Without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. You see, God gave to the church, to us, the task of telling the world about him. He doesn't bypass us and just do it supernaturally. He has given us the task to go and tell to go and make disciples, to go and share the good news. Now, we can't do it without him. 
But God is not going to do it without the church. He's not going to do it without us. He won't do it without us because that's how he's set it up. That's how he has mandated it to be. So when it comes to reaching the nations, which Jesus says, this is your task, go and make disciples of all nations. When it comes to reaching the nations, without God we can't, but without us he won't. When it comes to reaching Cambridge, without God we can't, but without us he won't. When it comes to reaching Barnwell and Marley, without God we can't, but without us he won't. When it comes to reaching your family, your friends, my family, my friends. Without God, we can't. But without him, without us, he won't. But why should we be witnesses for Jesus? What's it all about? Why, do we, why even worry about this stuff? Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? If we say yes to that question, Jesus says, as we finished last Sunday in John 14, if you love me, keep my commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? If we love God, if we have found hope and forgiveness in him, why keep it to ourselves? Is that loving our neighbour as ourselves? You know, the responsibility to share the good news of Jesus is ours, all of ours, every one of us. And we don't do it because we have to do it, just like we, last week we don't, have, we don't want to have a Sabbath because we have to. We don't want to give because we have to. We want to give because we love God and want to give back to him what he's first given to us. We want to spend time with him because we love him. We want to tell people in the world about Jesus and the hope that we have in him and the forgiveness that can be found in him because we love him. And because we love him, we should love others. And it's loving them. That's what causes us, wants, drives us to, to share that message. With Jesus. Knowing that there are men, women and children that are going to go to hell without Jesus. What does that do to you? What does that do to you? When you reflect on the, on the truth that God loves you, God loves them. God asks us to love our neighbour as ourselves and yet that is the truth, that is the reality. How does it affect us? I would argue that it's hard to be just apathetic to that if we really love God. <laughs> Jesus says, do you love me? Well then, love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus spoke to Peter. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. As Jesus brought Peter face to face with the reality of loving him, he encouraged him to do what he had been mandated to do, to feed and care for the disciples. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. What does that actually mean? What did it actually mean? What did it look like for Peter to do that? We go to the book of Acts and we read the first few chapters of Acts. What does it look like? It looks like he was teaching them. He was the one that was standing up and leading this group of people, some of whom had doubted that Jesus was even who he said he was. He was modelling a Christ-like behaviour and Christ-like attitudes in the care he was showing. He was willing to put his life on the line, brought healing to the the cripple. And in chapter 5, he brought judgment and challenge, which led to the death of two disciples at at the hands of God. One of the real blessings of following Jesus is that he brings us into family. He brings us into community. He brings us into relationship with others. Over the the sabbatical, a number of the books I read, some were around leadership, some were around the church, some were around kind of just ongoing, our ongoing discipleship journey. And so many of them reference the place of small groups and the significance of small groups in discipleship, in growing. It's one of the, things, one of the reasons why we've been doing some work with Dan on small groups over these last few weeks and months. And in a number of the books, they referenced Wesley and the Wesleyan uh, band that, that formed. And they, they had this question that they would ask of one another. How, how is it with your soul? When they got together in their small groups, the question was, how is it with your soul? Not what's the weather like. <laughs> what kind of week have you had? How is it with your soul? Gets to the point a little bit, doesn't it? Perhaps you could rephrase that. What's God been teaching you? What's your relationship with God doing? Where's God in your life at the moment? How do we do that for one another? How do we do that together? What does it look like for us to encourage one another? What does it look like in church community? The writer of the Hebrews says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Encouragement, spurring one another on, building one another up, asking the challenging questions of each other, How is it with your soul? What's God teaching you? What are you learning? How are you growing? As a leader of a church, I accept that one of the responsibilities that I have is to lead the church. It's what I was asked to do. I recognise scripturally that that brings extra responsibility. But at the same time, as the church you have to be willing to be led. You can't have one without the other. <laughs> you can't have a leader and no one follows. Well, you, well, you can. It doesn't work. 
Is there a willingness on my part to lead? Yes. Is there a willingness on your part to be led? I hope so and pray so. We together, we work this stuff out. But one of the hardest elements of ministry for me and for most ministers that I know are those difficult conversations that have to happen. Where something's not quite right. Where I see something that I need to address. It's tough. Really hard. But I hope you know me well enough now over 19 years to know that I'm not going to run from those moments. But equally, I hope you know that I do it because I love you. And I love the church. But, you know, it it does something to me when I know I've got to have those conversations. But how do we bring challenge? How do we bring accountability in the life of the church? Those words are words that actually for some of us we don't like. It makes us feel a little bit difficult. We don't like accountability or challenge. Actually, Sometimes we're, we're like those people that we can't we can build walls, we build our own little castle we, we, and we draw up the moat and we put up the drawbridge and we kind of stay and we kind of quite like it when we're in control of that space. Whilst that might be worldly wisdom, let me assure you that's not biblical. That is not how God wants it to be. There is space and there is room and there should be room in church, in kingdom, in community for us to hold each other accountable, to challenge each other, to ask the difficult questions of one another. And I promise you that I will continue to not run away from those difficult conversations. And I know that I've come back and I know that there are some difficult conversations I've got to have with some people in this family. I know that. And it fills me with dread. Because, humanly speaking, it can only end badly. (laughs) But I do it because I love the church. I love the people. And I want to continue to be the person, the minister, the leader that encourages to grow, encourages discipleship, encourages us to to dig in and to press in and to to continue to, to love God and to love people. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says, do you love me? Well then, we need to encourage one another. We need to spur one another on. We need to keep pressing in. We need to keep working at it. It's not perfect. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we try to do the best we can. Stirred by and motivated by love. just want to finish with this last section and you know, bear with me with this. I'm very conscious that what I'm about to do, and what I'm about to say, and what I'm about to, to, to how I'm about to close the service, it could feel like I'm having a go at some individuals, and you might feel got at. Please be assured that I am not thinking of anybody in particular here. This is just something I feel God has put on my heart to share, so I'm going to share it, okay? I mentioned... Um, a book that I was reading, I am currently reading, called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by this guy, Peter Scazzaro. And uh, I also mentioned to you, for those of you who remember this, that if you've read Ruthless Elimination, hurry 
John Mark Hamill references this guy quite a lot in his book. In the opening section of this book, Peter talks about four failures that he says undermine deep discipleship. What is it in our churches where we don't have the depth? He talks about breadth. He says, we, you know, we've got a, you know, a good spread, but actually, are we really deep in our discipleship? Are we really deep in our walk with God? And he highlights for himself four things that he says are the, are the reason why we don't have that deep discipleship in our churches. The first is this. We tolerate emotional immaturity. Secondly, he says, we emphasize doing for God over being with God. Thirdly, he says, we ignore the treasures of church history, the differences of church traditions, what we learn from one another. We define success wrongly. Bigger isn't necessarily better. What I'm going to do, and I hope you will bear with me here, read to you as it comes in the book. So these aren't my words, these are Peter's words. And I just think it's quite helpful. This is particularly thinking about the first issue. We, t- we tolerate emotional immaturity. This is what he says. Over time, our expectations of what it means to be spiritual have blurred to the point that we have, given, we have grown blind to many glaring inconsistencies. For example, we have learned to accept that you can be a gifted speaker for God in public and be a detached spouse or angry parent at home. You can function as a leader and yet be unteachable, insecure and defensive. You can quote the Bible with ease and still be unaware of your reactivity. You can fast and pray regularly and yet remain critical of others, justifying it as discernment. You can lead people for God, when in reality your primary motive is an unhealthy need to be admired by others. You can be hurt by the unkind comment of a co-worker and justify saying nothing because you avoid conflicts at all costs. You can serve tirelessly in multiple ministries and yet carry resentments because there is little personal time for healthy self-care. You can lead a large ministry with little transparency, rarely sharing struggles or weaknesses. All of these are examples of emotional immaturity in action, and yet we don't see them as the glaring contradictions they are. Why? Because we have disconnected emotional health from spiritual health. Where did we get the idea that it's possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature? The the answer is multifaceted. But let me focus here on two significant reasons. I'm not going to read them all out. I'm going to highlight what they are. Reason one, and this ties into what we were thinking about. We no longer measure our love for God by the degree to which we love others. We've separated out loving God from loving people. And reason two, we elevate the spiritual and distrust the emotional. 
If you look back at church history, there has been men and women who have argued that the spiritual is more important than everything else. Jesus wasn't fully human. He was fully God, but he couldn't be fully human at the same time. What does it mean for us if we believe that Jesus was both fully God and fully human? It means that he was more than just a spiritual being. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's a question that we can't just simply answer in the spiritual. And the reason for that is because we're more than spiritual beings. Do we love God with all that we are? With every aspect of our lives? What does it mean for us to love God physically? We have physical bodies. What does it look like for us, for me, for you, to love God with my body, with all that I am? Do we care for the bodies that God has given us? Do we exercise? Do we eat healthy? Do we sleep well? Do we abuse our bodies? Drink too much? Smoke? Put stuff into our bodies which are unhealthy? Do we honour God with our sexuality? What do we do with our bodies? How do we love God with our bodies, with our physical selves? Jesus was a human being with a physical body. And he worshipped God and he loved God and he honoured God with all that he was, physically. What does it mean for us to do that today? Intellectually, what are we reading? What are we studying? What are we learning? How are we growing? Do we love God with our minds? Do we allow God to shape our minds? What are we feeding our minds with? Socially, what does it love to look like to love God in the world in which you are placed? Your social connections, your communities. Not just family, not just home. Do you love God in those spaces? Is it obvious that you love God in those spaces? Or do you just morph into what everyone else is doing around you? What about the language that you use, the way that you behave in those spaces? Do we love God socially? Do we love God in those spaces? Emotionally. Do we love God with our emotions? How much are we in touch with our emotions? Do we cry and weep with the pain of seeing people who are going to hell without Jesus? And seeing the suffering in our world? Do we allow that to, to move us to tears? To feel the emotion, the compassion that Jesus has for those people? Do we embrace the emotions of sorrow and, and, and suffering and, and deep pain? Or do we run away from that? And ignore it and miss what God wants to teach us in those places. Are we emotionally numb? See, loving God with all of our heart, that's our emotions. 
our soul, spiritually, our mind, as our intellect, our strength, as our physical beings, and loving our neighbour as ourselves, that's the social element of it. Loving God in all of that means that we have to be more than just spiritual beings and not elevate spirituality to something that is distant from this, what we have in front of us. But so often we compartmentalise and we put it all together. And we just thought, okay, I'll do the spiritual bit, the Sunday bit, the church bit, when I'm the other Christians bit, and the rest of the time. Well, that's nothing to do with God, is it? How do I love God in those spaces? I've shared with you over these last weeks that, you know, God met me in some amazing places, in some amazing spaces. And um, one of those places was, this, was in this book. It's Will Smith's autobiography. And there were so many bits in this that were like, Wow. Some of you will know Will Smith and uh, what some of his did. He, was, um, he played Muhammad Ali in the film Ali, and he went on a training, uh, had to get in training for that. And this guy was his trainer. His name was Daryl. Daryl's style of training is full immersion. He doesn't ask anybody to do anything that he doesn't do. Over the next year, he ran every mile, jumped every rope, lifted every weight, sparred as many rounds, every moment of training right by my side. He ate when I ate. He slept when I slept. He worked when I worked. Often, he would quote Edgar Guest's poem, The Sermons We See. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes are better people and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. You see, everything I've just said is not for you. Everything that I've just said is for me. All of this stuff that I've been wrestling with in the sabbatical was not for me to bring back to you to say to you guys, you've got to deal with this. It was God to say to me, you've got to deal with this, Stuart. I never want to be the kind of minister that stands up and preaches a sermon that doesn't say, this is for me. I want to be the kind of sermon, this to be the kind of sermon that you've just heard about there, that has hands and feet and eyes and ears. See, I'm on the same journey that you're on. I'm on the same path of discipleship as you. I'm wrestling with what it means to give God time as much as you are. I'm wrestling with what it means to give God money as much as you are. I'm wrestling with what it means to love God as much as you are. Do you love me? Do I love him? Do I honour God with my time? Do I give God the first of my money and things? Do I love God so much that I want everyone else to know? I want to share that hope, that forgiveness, that love, that life that we have.
I love God so much that I want to encourage and spur you guys on to press on to be the best that you can be and to bring the challenge when it needs to come. To love God in every aspect of my life, all that I am physically, emotionally, intellectually, socially and spiritually, that in every part of my life I am honouring God and I'm loving God. Loving God, loving people, they're intellect, intertwined. They're linked, you can't separate them out. Do you love me? Do I love him? Let's be quiet just for a moment.